Welcome to Our Soul, a podcast by Kelly Fox and Terry Williams from the Ohio Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice. Hello, everyone. Um, Welcome back to Our Soul. Uh, It's just me and Terry this week. Hi, Terry. Hello. So um, this week, uh, if you guys didn't know, we had, well, by the time you hear this, um, we have had our first um, restorative justice book club, um, which I am so excited about, um, where we read Emergent Strategy and We Will Not Cancel Us by Adrienne Marie Brown. And um, if you missed it and you want to hear more, um, I am going to be writing a little blog post with just general little bits, but we're going to talk a little bit about these today as well as some things that are going on. So um, Terry, I know you've read this book. Like what are, what are some things that come up for you? So I think the reason that I really love this author is because she embodies so much of her effort in the work that she does and the process that she engages. You know, Emergent Strategy is all about how there is not a strategic plan to get to um, our concept of collective liberation, that we have to really live a discipline of engaged community life in order to achieve that new future we're looking at. So it's not like... It's not a self-help book and it's not a like, you know, 14 steps to transformation or like Saul Alinsky rules for radicals, right? I mean, this is like, this is the legit, uh, this this is the strategy. Now you have to find a way to make it work. And the strategy is compassion, care, empathy, engagement, being real people and honestly engaging with each other when life gets messy, what would the world look like if we were able to live into this process of letting folk who are directly affected be the voices that directly affect change? And just having this uh, this mindset and this um, focus on being a community and like what it means to care for each other as community. Um, there's one this one quote in here that I really like so um adrian marie brown talks a lot about like that idea that you were talking about like you you have these values and these morals and these um things that kind of guide you towards the right path as an organization as a community as a movement um but there is no like you do this and this and this um restorative and transformative justice is messy and is naturally growing and has to be built from the um, communities that are doing it. it like you can't just adapt one plan um overall but uh one thing that i think is really important to this conversation about like what would the world look like um if we were using this model of thinking is um this quote on page 113 if you re- if you have the book um <laughs> Uh, It says, we are realizing that we must become the systems we need. No government, political party, or corporation is going to care for us, and we have to remember how to care for each other. And that will take time and commitment 
and a willingness to step out of the comfort and of the current and lean into the unknown together. And I think that leaning into the unknown is particularly difficult, like um, especially to plan and to um, embrace. Because I think as, <clears throat> you know, as a community of people that are um, often the ones being marginalized, uh, like it's, it's difficult to um, embrace the unknown when the unknown has often been the thing that hurts us. Um, and and at the same time, like glory, uh, the idea that no government or political party or you know institution in particular is going to take care of us, I find that to be a truth that a lot of marginalized communities are already fully aware of and are living in. I think a lot of people look at us in um, Appalachia, you know, the place where I live, as folk who are backwards or somehow, you know, not open to outsiders coming in. And they're pretty well-founded. I mean, we have a, a pretty healthy suspicion that is born out of experience. You know, we have had a long, long time um, existing with people who just don't understand our culture and they don't appreciate our culture. And when they show up down here, they're looking for either money or votes or both or cheap labor. And I feel like there are a lot of communities like that. We start talking about vaccine hesitancy in um, greater Ohio among communities of color, among um, communities that are, quote unquote, the urban poor, which I think is a really interesting phrase that the media and the government keep using. But like all of these different groups are united in their acceptance of the fact that systems are not made for us and systems are not going to take care of us. We have to take care of ourselves. Um, and, and I I find it interesting, particularly given, you know, last week's uh horrible, horrible weather in Texas that essentially shocked a whole state into realizing that their government is not taking care of them. Uh, there was even a, a small town uh, mayor who told his people, um, I owe you nothing. You know, the government owes you nothing. And there, there's part of me that gets real mad at that guy. But then, you know, there's another part of me like the the more cynical, like, uh, you know, deep rooted uh, my, my grandmother's heart that's in me that says, well, at least he had the courage to say the quiet part out loud. Right. <laughs> that's like, true, I that's mean, true. At, at least at least he wasn't lying. Right. I mean, that's ooh, true. I, mm -hmm. I saw something about um, I think it was um, a mayor or something that had to resign because he said, like, basically only the strongest will survive. And like, that's insane. And that kind of goes back to that idea that, you know, because of the white supremacist, capitalist, racist um, uh, society that we live in, like the separation often between um, the the government and the people is so much so that like the government cannot actually know the needs of the people that well. And so um, I, I feel like, you know, they have that phrase like all politics is local, but I think that um, like all of 
the issues that we have here are not the same issues that would be like here in Columbus for me are not the same issues that they're having in Cleveland are not the same issues that they're having in Appalachia. And so um, the solutions to those problems cannot accurately be done on a statewide level. Like it needs to kind of be, you know, individual based off of the issues that we have. And and I think too, you know, that, that old maxim that, um, all politics is local. I think that extends not just to geography, but it extends to social position and life experience. It was really interesting to hear the president talk about student loan forgiveness because the president here a couple of weeks ago made very clear that he's not in favor of more than about $10,000 per uh, borrower of student loan forgiveness, which tells me that the president didn't have to take out student loans after 1985 or perhaps ever in his life, right? Because like $10,000 of student loans, um, even for the most economic of state schools, is not going to get you very far. Uh, The idea that we are now going to have some kind of promoted relief from the government because well, you know, we, we need to stimulate the economy, right? We, we ought to be having a conversation about why we tax people to get an education, right? But we're not having that conversation because the two political parties right now have been able to isolate the dialogue to mainly people who graduated from college decades ago and have absolutely no experience of of the modern economy. What would it look like if we had local decisions around things like uh, student loan forgiveness made by people who actually had student loans? What would it look like if only people under the age of 25 were on that advisory committee, right? And I think that, for me, that's, that's the joy that Adrian Marie Brown brings to the conversation because she is asking, like, why do we keep doing everything the same way and then defending really bad outcomes? Yeah, for sure. And uh, a lot of the emergent strategy book specifically um, talks about like looking to nature and the way that like nature relies on each other and um, lifts each other up. Um, Specifically, I'm thinking about how um, root systems will support each other like trees will have roots, um, root systems that go like miles wide um, so that it can survive. And I think that we are not relying enough on our, our own root systems. Um, and so that's, that's why like we're, we, if we cannot join together to work for the collective gain that we can have um, as, as people who know each other and who can support each other or have similar backgrounds, like, um, if we can't rely on those roots, then we can't do significant change in a way that is ethical and uh, is aware of the humanity of all people. Um, <laughs> which reminds right me on. of like one of my favorite quotes from this book. Which like if if you have heard me talk in the last like six months, I've probably mentioned this quote to you. Um, but uh, in the beginning of Emergent Strategy, um, Adrian Marie Brown talks a little bit about her her own discovering of herself and um, her experiences seeing the miraculous in herself. Um, And so on page 17, it says, I felt and feel miraculous. It's confusing to feel so miraculous when so many people hate my skin and my history. 
I see the miraculous in others. Even those who hate me have heartbeats and I generally assume have people they love. Why can't they love me? Should I love them anyway? How can I hold these massive contradictions? And so when thinking about on like a local level, like the people that you could actually know, the people that you can actually see in your communities who may not specifically like you, I think that the the call to love them anyway, or to try to is really important. The thing about those root systems, again, uh, when we reach out, there may be people that we are not so inclined to work with. Um, who, who have similar ideals and could be allies that we're not inclined to work with because we've made up in our minds like one thing about them. Mm. But um, going into the other book, We Will Not Cancel Us, uh, we haven't taken the time to get to know that person. We haven't taken the time to, to learn why they may act in a certain way and um, think from a certain perspective. And if we're not willing to, with the people that we know, um, enact transformative justice and have those tough conversations and be like, hey, the way you worded that thing made me feel really uncomfortable. And I don't know why you worded it that way, but that hurt me. Can can we talk about this? Like, I think those, um, those opportunities are ways of learning um, with each other. And um, I'm currently taking a restorative justice, like, quick class for like one month and we've been talking about how conflict is an opportunity and how conflict is a means of growing and I think that uh, we need to be able to on a local level be uh, embrace conflict with each other and I think going along with that is um you know, We Will Not Cancel Us talks about uh, how we cannot just be throwing away people and how, you know, we need to stop embracing this, uh, this cancel culture of fellow people in the movement specifically. Um, because when we are just willing to, to cancel each other and not see each other out, um, we're, we're basically going back to that root metaphor, cutting off people we could be connected with roots that we could be building, um, to make like a stronger foundation. But, um, and when we cut people off, we're also, you know, re- recreating the car carceral system within our own movements you know like so the, essentially at least the way that I see prison is that prisons are canceling people you know you somebody does something wrong um, you're not able to like fully truly understand the situation because um, there are so many other factors that are not currently addressed in our criminal justice system and like the system is racist there's all these things I don't need to I don't need to go into that. Um, but, uh, and then we throw them in jail and then they can't, or like if they're um, committed, if they committed a felony, then they like can't vote. And like, there's all these barriers that comes after they come out of prison. And essentially we've canceled them. We've marked them with the scarlet letter, like they're different and separated. And like, when we think about like how cancel culture is and how, um, these conflicts when not handled appropriately can turn into alienating people and never being able to like see them in the same light, which is understandable. Like there are some, there are some conflicts that are like really difficult and big 
And when these things are so near and dear to our hearts, it can be hard to be able to step back and see that person as human. But what I've learned from these books is that stepping back and seeing the people that you may have conflict with, the people who are in movement spaces with you and who care about the same things, that step back can mean having a more nuanced perspective, being able to move forward with a stronger foundation and being able to learn from each other. I think if I've learned anything from Adrian Murray Brown is that um, we need to be willing to see that we ourselves can be the harmers when we are looking at um, the people who harm. And we need to be willing to, to see all the intricacies of conflict, even though that is really difficult and really hard. And I totally admit that. And, you know, the book, um, We Will Not Cancel Us, really reminded me of a, a dialogue book um, between the writings of Gandhi and Thomas Merton. Um, that I, I read in seminary, you know, this this dialogic between um, Thomas Merton as a, a practicing pacifist and the work of Gandhi as, you know, a social rights movement person who was trying to communicate to folk that you cannot violently do justice. You know, you you have to embody the justice you seek to bring into the world. And what what I think Adrienne Marie Brown makes real for, for this day and age is the conversation around what power as a dynamic looks like. Because you can't uh, truly cancel somebody from the margins. The real cancel culture is the absolute systemic canceling of bodies, identities, spirits, and souls by systems of oppression that have functioned that way for years. Um, you know, you think through the carceral system, the carceral system is meant to cancel you up front and on down the road. Because once folk get out, they got a record. There are systems that keep them permanently disabled from a society standpoint, permanently second class for the rest of their lives. Even if they achieve an expungement or they're, you know, they're able to achieve some measure of this negotiated legal system justice, right? They, they don't have the level of support from the system that other folk have. So the, the idea of cancel culture is not that people just get really mad because folk do stupid things, right? Cancel culture is when you create a system that systemically disadvantages and harms other people. And Adrian Marie Brown is saying we cannot recreate a system and allow it to have the same flaws and bugs that the current system has. I mean, you know, I I should probably rephrase that. It's not, you know, it's not a bug. It's a feature, right, of the system. Like, this system was designed to abuse people in this way. But Adrian Marie Brown's whole gospel here is to say, come on, folks, we have got to do better. We've got to have a system that doesn't harm people, that doesn't, you know, disadvantage people simply because we don't like them or we don't understand them or we don't get them. And at the same time, it's got to be a system that is full of justice and equity and that doesn't tolerate BS. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, and I think, uh, so I'm also reading a book for a different class that I'm taking. Um, it's 
Our Prisons Obsolete by Angela Davis. And um, I might be bringing that to a book club this summer, depending on how the book clubs go this spring. But um, anyway, uh, in that, she talks about like how um, people take for granted the prison system because it's like all we've ever known. And it don't understand that like the prison system doesn't have to exist. I think that completely aligns with um, Adrienne Marie Brown's vision of the future in Emergent Strategy on page 163. Uh, she, she talks about this world that we're trying to create together. And it says, we are creating a world we have never seen. We are whispering it to each other, cuddled in the dark, and we are screaming it at people who are so scared of it that they dress themselves in war regalia to turn and face us. Because of our ancestors, because of us, because of the children we are raising, there will be a future without police and prisons. Um, and she goes on with another, um, all these different visions of what the future will look like because of the vision that we create. And like you were saying, we have to enact the policies that we want to see. If we're living towards a future where uh, there are no police, where people are not harmed, where there's not abuse, where there's no hunger, no violence, like those kinds of things. Yes, it sounds utopian. Yes, it sounds like crazy and far off, but we have to be living towards that future if we ever want to get anywhere close to it. You know, it's kind of like the, um, I remember a really long time ago, a pastor said to me, fake it till you make it when it comes to like, um, if you're working towards something, live as if you are in that something. And I think that also applies to justice movements. Um, you know, if we want to live in a future where there is no police, then we need to figure out what that future looks like. Clearly, what does it look like? And until we get to that future, there will still be some amounts of harm and some amounts of, you know, needing to protect each other. What does it look like to protect each other without using the state? And we will not cancel us. Um, uh, Adrian Marie Brown, she said once, um, gives more questions than answers. Um, and I think that's, you know, a good way of going about things uh, to to look at things with more questions than um, actual actual answers because everything needs to be looked at in context. But um, one of the, she gives a bunch of lists of questions, literal questions in We Will Not Cancel Us um, in the book. And it says, moving towards life affirming movements includes asking and then like a bunch of questions. But the first question that I think is most important is in cases of abuse and assault, what does the survivor need? And then in cases of conflict, what resolution is possible? And in the end, um, there are questions like, uh, what will end the cycle of harm here and what will help us find a way forward? And I think having those mindsets of like thinking about first who are the survivors and what do they need and centering their needs in the movement, not some like, you know, thing that we want personally, it needs to be coming from the people who are directly harmed. Those are the most important people um, when it comes to movements. So like, for example, uh, you know, black and brown people around um, police brutality, um, you know, people who have uteruses <laughs> around reproductive justice, um, queer people around queer issues, like it, it just, it's very clear there. And the most marginalized are the people who should be at the front that we should be listening to, because those are the ones that are directly affected by the harm. You you think about the, the greater um, Ohio region, when we start looking at what things are most critical to directly impacted communities, you know, what are, what are some of the things that come up? Um, I'm, I'm reminded of our friends up in Toledo at uh, Capital Care Clinic. They recently uh, had a, um, 
city ordinance proposed in Toledo that would prohibit individuals from harassing patients outside of their clinic because they've had this long-standing problem with uh, protesters, particularly Christian, particularly uh, Catholic protesters outside of their clinic, harassing individuals, blocking entry often to the abortion clinic, and many times following patients who park several blocks away, following them to their car, taking pictures of them, showing up at their homes, you know. Um, And this new ordinance that has come came because several members of Toledo City Council came and asked people at the clinic, you know, what is your experience like here? And people said, you know, our experience is great once we get in the door, but my God, you know, uh, it took me two or three times to get past these protesters because they're so aggressive and they're so cruel and they're so obstructionist in, in their methods. Um, and I find it so interesting that that particular uh, piece of legislation finally made its way in front of um, Toledo City Council. It's go- it's under consideration now in their process. And it's starting to draw all this negative uh, press and kind of these these frustrated responses from, of all places, the archdiocese. Well, I, I guess the diocese of Toledo is not an archdiocese, you know. Uh, but the diocese of Toledo is really upset because they, they feel that's going to somehow tread on their First Amendment freedoms. Of course, it's not. Um, and, and you're getting the responses from these institutions that feel like they should have the right to constantly berate people because of a reproductive health choice that they make. And people in the community just aren't buying it, you know. People in the Toledo community are are meeting this by saying, well, yeah, people should be allowed to go uh, get health care without having to walk through a bunch of protesters or, you know, fear that their car's going to be stopped, uh, you know, by people standing in the way. Or It's fascinating to me, though, to see the persecution complex by some people in the majority you know, in this this kind of, um, you know, this this power majority, not people majority, right? Because we know the majority of people support access at clinics. But this power majority saying, oh, how dare you challenge our, our power and authority? And that challenge is coming from directly affected people being heard, right? And this kind of reminds me um, at... At the end of emergent strategy, like for real, I would recommend emergent strategy to anyone who's, you know, even thinking about putting a restorative or transformative justice um, lens into their work, which I would recommend. But at the end of emergent strategy, there's a whole section that's literally just like uh, examples of ways that you could use this in a facilitation process. And this reminds me of um, one of the methods that she suggests is like creating a blank agenda, like, uh, you know, like a very bare bones agenda when you have any meeting and allowing for the issues that are most important to come forward. Like not, you know, like trying to break from like, we need to have set things written down um, and letting the things that need to happen come forward. Because I mean, stuff like that in Toledo is what I is like a step towards this justice that we're pursuing. You know, the I mean, it sounds really basic to, you know, want to not be harassed when you go get health care. But the fact that um, that can come from hearing the community 
hearing the issues that um, are coming from the community, I think points to this restorative and transformative justice lens. Absolutely. And, you know, we'll, we'll go ahead and put information about how you can support the work in Toledo um, up with the podcast on our blog at ohiorcrc.org slash podcast. And uh, since we are running out of time here, the next restorative justice um, book club will be on beyond survival um, strategies and stories from the transformative justice movement. So this is specifically um, transformative justice and it's basically like an anthology of different um, strategies that people have used to enact transformative justice. And one question that comes at the beginning is um, because we are a community of black and brown and um, trans and immigrant people, like how do we create justice for each other without involving the state, which has harmed us? So um, I'm really excited about reading this book. I haven't read it before, unlike the other two books that we're, we read for this month, but I'm really excited about that. So, um, And the, the date for that, again, is? The, the next book club will be on March 30th from 3 to 4, and I'm very excited about sharing that with y'all and um, being able to parse through um, what it actually looks like to do transformative justice, because um, I think having practical examples is important. I look forward to coming back in two weeks. Thank you.